I went to a free breakfast this week. Put on by Logos Bible Software. If you're not familiar, uh, Logos Bible Software is a, a local company. It used to be down in like Anacortes, but founded by an ex-Microsoft uh, uh, programmer. And he's created some of the best uh, Bible study software there is. Does all kinds of things. I mean, if... Uh, if, uh, if it actually had bells and whistles attached to the box that the software comes in, you wouldn't be able to lift the box because it just does everything. So they put on a, a free, uh, free breakfast and an informational time, and I didn't quite know what it was about, but uh, I heard the words free breakfast, and I thought, well, let's sign up. And, <laughs> and uh, I thought, I'll go and see what they have going on. And uh, they have a new director of church connection or something for the northwest area and uh, so he was just saying hey here i am and here's what our software does and and uh and oh by the way would you like to upgrade (laughs) and so the free breakfast cost me the better part of a day's wage before it was done um wasn't that free after all but it was just so good i couldn't pass it up it's a great, uh, uh, Lord willing, it's a great new program with some great new capabilities. There are some great, great themes in the Christmas story that I don't want you to pass by. And so we're looking at some of those themes this year in our, in our times uh, in December together. Last week we looked at the theme of forgiveness. Jesus, the very name Jesus means God will save, and it means we need to be forgiven. This week we want to look at the power of God displayed in the Christmas story. And we can't look at it all, we're just going to touch on some of the, some of the high points, but then look and see how that power ought to be encouraging us in our Christian life. Please follow as I read from Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. Then you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? 
For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you and bring these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time." We want to look at some of the examples of God's power in the story of the Christmas story. And the first one is the conception of John the Baptist. You, you could spend a lot of time trying to lay out the whole Christmas story in a chronological order, but this is one of the earlier events. John the Baptist was chosen by God, prepared by God, to be the forerunner, that is to be the person who would go and preach about Christ before Christ came and to prepare the way. But before any of that could happen, he had to be born. And God chose to cause John to be born in a way and to some people that would demonstrate the power of God. Clearly, Zacharias thought it was an impossibility. In, there are other miraculous elements in this story, like the fact that, that this was the time when Zacharias actually went in and, and, uh, and gave the incense or waved the incense in the place of worship, and it says that it fell to him by lot. There's all kinds of things that are going on in this story, but it comes right down to the angel saying, look, you're going to have a son. Your wife is going to be pregnant in her old age. And Zacharias responds by saying, how can that be? There's an element of doubt with him. And I love what the angel says. The angel says, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Do you you understand he's saying, Zacharias, what's wrong with you? I was just standing before God. I heard the words come out of his very mouth, and now I've come to tell you. And so then another miracle unfolds, the miracle of, of Zacharias being dumb, uh, not being able to speak, and, and then later on his mouth being opened. In these days, we look at the lack of conception on some people's parts and see it as a, a medical issue, which obviously it is a, a physical issue with people. And we look at the changing of that as a medical procedure. Well, if you can't have a child, you have a medical procedure, then you'll be able to have a child. And many times that is the case. And so maybe when we read this, we don't get the full impact of being barren. But there was no medical procedures. There was no hope for this woman to conceive a son and no expectation that from them would come someone who was special and unique and a critical part of God's program. These two were well advanced in years, but with God, it's not a problem. Elizabeth and the conception of John is perhaps the first miracle in the Christmas story, but of course it's not the biggest miracle in the Christmas story. The biggest miracle would be the conception of Christ himself. Follow on to chapter 2 of Luke, and let's read here. Excuse me, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee 
named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her her who was called barren. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. With God... Nothing will be impossible. We could be tempted in our modern day to explain the case of Elizabeth and Zacharias Zacharias as a fluke of human life, but this defies any explanation except one, and that is that God miraculously caused her to become pregnant with the Son of God. The third example of power that we see is the census that took Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. Turn to Luke chapter 2. Now, please, Luke chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This is um, essentially what the historians tell us was a poll tax. A poll tax means they count heads and every single person who lives in an area has to pay a tax just for living there. Uh, they didn't maybe so much have income tax uh, like we would think of it, so sometimes they had to pay this poll tax. And the decree said, look at verse uh, 3, so everyone went to be registered to his own city. They had to go back to their hometown. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. The significance of this, of course, is that Joseph's home, Joseph's current place of residence was Nazareth, And the Old Testament said very clearly that Bethlehem would be the birthplace of the Savior. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Just as a side note, would you look at the last part of that verse just a minute? Do you see the combination of the ruler of Israel and someone who is eternal, whose goings are from everlasting. The folks who heard Christ, the Pharisees, and they heard him talk about being God and being eternal and were so angry, needed to read their Old Testament better. 
And they would have understand that the king who was to come was also going to be eternal. But the point that we're making right now is this. That census took Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, and that's where Christ was born. And so the scripture was accurate that predicted his birth in Bethlehem. God had to work powerfully to make that happen in the world. The fourth uh, example of God's power is the star that guided the wise men. Turn to Matthew chapter 2, if you would. Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Um, What kind of power does it take to make a star appear? I would guess it takes about the same amount of power it took to create the stars to begin with. A tremendous amount of power. Now, we can debate all day, well, what in the world was this? What this was was a miraculous appearance of a star that God caused for a specific purpose. And somehow, when they were over there in the area that we would call Iraq or Persia, and they looked and they said, wow, there is a star that we've never seen before. Let's go see. It seems to be standing still there. And they came, and apparently the star stopped shining long enough for them to come in and talk to Herod. God wanted Herod to be notified And God wanted the spiritual rulers to be notified. So in they come, where is he to be born? Because they'd gotten that far, but they didn't know the specifics. Now you notice when they go out, the star moves ahead of them again until it gets right over the place, and they go in and they worship him. Tremendous power, tremendous power that took God to do that. The the next miracle that goes right with this, the next, next demonstration of power, is the valuables that these people brought. Look at verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented to him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, there are several significances to these, to these gifts. Um, certainly gold is indicative of a king. Uh, frankincense and myrrh were both what we would call incense or perfume, um, perhaps perfume in the sense that you might light a candle in your house to make it smell good, something like that. Frankincense was quite expensive, myrrh not quite so much. And both of those have significance in his life being uh, 
things that would have been used for burial in those days. But they also have great economic value. And what happened right after this? What happened was Herod said, I'm going to kill all the children two years old and younger in an attempt to get rid of this king of the Jews. And so they picked up and ran to Egypt without a credit card, without a debit card, and probably with not that much just plain financial resource about them. Uh, Do you remember when you were a newlywed and how much money you had or didn't have? These people were well set to stay in Egypt for a period of time, at least well set enough to live until they could get their feet on the ground, as we would say, and start earning a living there. And then later, when Herod was dead, they came back. They came back to Nazareth. But this is a miracle that God worked out. God showed himself powerful to provide. And so we look at these five examples of the power of God. Now, if I was to say, how many of you believe those miracles happened? Raise your hand. Okay. So you believe God is powerful. Okay. I want to look at some scripture that talks about the Christian life. Would you go to Ephesians chapter 1, please? My desire today is to take away perhaps some of the disconnect that happens between what we see at Christmas and what we see in our life. All of us who have known the Lord for any length of time, and especially those of us who grew up in the church, we look at this and we go, yep, that's what happened. But look what Ephesians chapter 1 says about us. Today, here and now, and the power of God. Ephesians 1.15. Paul, writing to the Christians at Ephesus, where he'd spent two or three years discipling them. Therefore, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And here's my prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. I'm praying that you'll get to really know God. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, the riches of His glory of the inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe. According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. What kind of power is at work or is available to work in us? It's the same power God used when he raised Christ from the dead. It's the same power he used when he spoke a star into existence and said, and, and caused the wise men to see it and made that star to move and and come over the place where Christ was. There is a tremendous promise here for Christian living, the promise of power for Christian living. You have resurrection power available to you. 
You may not have the strength that you think you need. You may not feel like you have that strength, but God does. You may not feel like you can take one more negative piece of news from somebody like a doctor, but God has the strength. You may be convinced that you have reached the limits of your tolerance with that awful boss or coworker or friend or loved one, but God has no limit. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. How much power is available to you for your Christian life? See, we we look at the miracles of Christmas. Oh, yes, God did miracles. We look at our life and go, hmm, I don't think so. I don't think it can happen. God says, yes, it can. Resurrection power is available to you. There's also a promise of protection, of power for protection from Satan. You are of God, little children, and you have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. God has promised to protect us from the evil one. How has he done that? Well, part of it is here. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. God has promised us promised to protect us from Satan. Satan's goal is to slow us down and stop our life in Christ and our work from Christ. And he does that by creating challenges to our physical life and to our ministry that tempt us to fear so much that we become paralyzed. But Satan is a dog who barks, but he can only bite as much as God allows And when we resist him, as we are instructed to do in 1 Peter 5, he flees. Which means the power that is in us is the power is greater than the power that is brought against us. Third promise of power for believers is the promise of powerful answers to prayer. In Ephesians 3, we read this, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church. Do you feel like there's power in you? Whether you feel it or not, God has placed his powerful Holy Spirit in you, and when you pray, you should expect God to work. Now, he may not work exactly the way you pray, but God promises that there is power available to us. This is such a a powerful promise. What do you imagine when you pray? I think most of us imagine what we could do. Well, I, I think I can lift that up. And we look around at things in our life and we say, well, I I could see this happening or I could see that happening. And so we pray for it. What do you expect? Can you imagine $5 million being donated to build a missionary hospital in a little country in Africa that's about that big on the map? Can you, if you were the person (laughs) who first sat down and said, God, we need this. I'm going to pray for it. 
Would you be that person? Would you even imagine that God could do that? And yet, God has done that, and, and, and they are very close to achieving that goal. Could you imagine that God would allow a major Christian ministry to be built like that in the midst of a majority religion that hates Christianity? And could you imagine that those very people who don't, do not like Christianity would pray for the hospital to come? I can't imagine that, but that's what's happened. Some of the missionaries we visited in Greece, uh, not, not Helen, but some others, couldn't imagine that an American church could afford to send a couple of leaders to visit their missionary. They couldn't imagine that. Can you imagine somebody that you know who is not saved getting saved and growing up in Christ? I can't, I can't imagine that a young girl from Mongolia comes to America to go to college, and she winds up a believer in Christ and in our church. I can't imagine that. Now, I used to pray for Mongolia a little bit because we used to have missionaries who were up there. Um, They didn't have anything to do with her getting saved. But could I ever imagine that God would do that? Boy, I couldn't. How much can God do? Exceedingly, abundantly, above what we ask or think. Because there is power at work. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4 for the next promise of power that we want to look at. Philippians chapter 4. And this is a promise of power for peace. But we're not going to look at the verses you think we will. If you're familiar with your Bible, you're familiar with Philippians 4, 6 through 7, which are a wonderful promise that God will give us peace if we give him our concerns instead of living in in the anxiety of our own mind. But the promise of power for peace, I think, comes a little farther down the passage. Look at verse 11. Now let's start at verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though surely you did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard of need. And and if you don't know, he's talking about financial support here in verse 10 and, and following. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. How did he learn that? He learned it from the truth of verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the promise of power for peace. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Colossians 127 says, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I have power to be at peace because Christ is in me. 
There's also a promise of power for obedience, and it's a wonderful little short verse that you ought to memorize in 1 Thessalonians 5.24. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. What is the call of God? The call of God he's talking about in this verse is this call right here. God calls us and says, do this and do this and don't do that, and he gives us all kinds of instructions. But he doesn't send out the instruction and then sit back and say, well, I wonder how that'll work out. Let's see if they're up to the challenge today. No, he sends out the instruction and he sends his Holy Spirit into us and he helps us and he strengthens us. And there is power to obey God. How are we going to know this power? How is this power going to become reality in us? Well, there's some principles that I've tried to pencil out that that I hope will help you to get a hold of that. Experiencing God's power requires faith in a powerful God. That's really my theme today. I just sought to touch on some, some of the truths of Scripture to come back to this. Is the God you believe in the God of Christmas? Is the God who caused Mary to be with child when she had not been with a man, the God who has that much power, is that the God you believe in? Do you believe in the God who, who could cause wise men to follow a star that he created and, 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 and they came to worship and they provided and yet God protected Christ from Herod and all of his evil ways. Do you believe in that God? Because if you do, you have the possibility of experiencing God's power in your life today, but only if you believe in a powerful God. We handcuff ourselves when we see God as small, oh, God couldn't do this, God couldn't do that, God couldn't do the other. The God of Christmas did great miracles, and he's still doing miracles today. We've got to believe in that God. Number two, experiencing God's power requires obedience regardless of understanding or consequences. The New Testament is full of commands. There are thoughts and behaviors to stop, and thoughts and behaviors to start. There are principles to apply. If we believe God, we obey, and the result is his power changes us. But we have to believe what he said. We have to believe that his word is powerful. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us, by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, the word of God, that through these you may be partaker of the divine nature. The question of obedience really is a faith question. Do I believe that if I follow God's word, God's result will come from it, which is Christ-likeness? Or do I look at parts of God's word and say, well, that doesn't fit my situation. I don't like it. I'm not going to, whatever. I'm going to make an excuse. Experiencing God's power requires obedience regardless of understanding or consequence. Number three, experiencing God's power requires accepting his providential leading. What do I mean by that? 
Well, James chapter 1 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Do you believe that God is so powerful that the only things that come your way are the things that he has allowed to come your way. If you do, then you accept those things and you deal with them in a godly way and you move forward in Christ as he has told you to move forward, believing that God is at work. Or you can choose to, to fight those things, to run from those things, to escape you know, James chapter 1 actually says, stay under those things. Don't try to run away from those things. We have to receive God's providential leading. And the fourth principle would be this. Experiencing God's power requires the pursuit of his ministry no matter the cost. Paul put it this way. If, if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of for necessity or or a, a burden, a, 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 something I have to do is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with the stewardship. The Apostle Paul had tremendous hardships throughout his ministry. And yet none of them caused him to stop. He kept going forward. He kept doing God's will wherever and however he could, regardless of the cost to him, the Apostle Paul did God's work even though it was dangerous, uncomfortable, expensive, and hurtful. And people were saved and churches were started. So the question would be today, how much do you want to know God's power, to experience God's power? Because if you do, you've got to believe in him and you've got to follow him. Um, when I was in China a few years ago to teach a class, we were there in November before the heat was turned on. The government controls heat, apparently in the large buildings or all the buildings, steam heat, that sort of thing. And so it was quite chilly, and nobody prepared us for that. We didn't have long johns with us, my partner and I, my friend that was teaching with me. Chinese folks all had warm clothes and so on, but we did not. And... Uh, in our room where we were sleeping, there was one of those air conditioner units right up there at the top. And uh, nobody tried to turn it on. Obviously, it was an air conditioner. After a few days, somebody got looking at the control, pushing the buttons, and heat came out. We went, thank the Lord. We had all the warmth available, but doing us no good until we turned it on. Now, I, I understand we don't turn on the power of God. God puts it in us, but we have to live in such a way to avail ourselves of that power. I want to challenge you to believe in the God of Christmas and to live like that power is available today. Heavenly Father, make yourself known here in our lives as individuals, in our church. Make your power known. We believe you are powerful enough to do everything we need. Help us to walk in faith and in obedience. 
and help us to see your hand at work. I pray in Christ's name, amen.